Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, if you've been listening to me very long, you know that phrase, loving your work, comes up repeatedly. Well, do you think it's possible? In today's environment, with all the things going on, whether we're in a recession, a downturn, an economic cycle, or whatever you want to call it, is it still possible? Well, I'm here to affirm that it is possible to love your work, and more and more people are either finding or creating work that they truly love. Even when things are challenging, it's not a time just to throw up your hands and wait till things get better. Things never get better. We get better. So if you get better, you can, in fact, find or create work that you love. Well, we're going to be looking at some of the questions submitted by you, the listeners, today. Thanks for your ongoing question submissions. It gives us fodder to discuss in ways that I hope helps all of us move to higher levels of success. Each week, I take 48 minutes here to look at the value of work and knowing that we're not just talking about how to create a paycheck, but how to really find that opportunity to live out our calling and purpose in what we do daily. You can submit questions to askdan at 48days.com or just go to the podcast link at 48days.com. You'll see a little form there that'll help you format your question. I'd be happy to address that in an upcoming podcast. Here are some of the things we're going to be talking about today. Dan, I want to kick the tires on a couple of different opportunities, but I'm afraid my current employer will find out and be unhappy with me. What would Dan do? Dan, I want to become a reseller of a book. What issues do I need to address? Actually, we've got several questions today. I kind of grouped them together that have to do with writing, publishing, rights to written content. So we'll we'll jump through some of those issues more and more people are um, raising their hands saying either that they want to write a book or they want to create content or they want to work with somebody else or they want to republish something. All those things are legitimate ways to uh, put legs in your dreams about being a writer, being an author. So we'll address those. Dan, I'm in a secure government position, but desire entrepreneurship. What do you think about me making my own learning curriculum versus going to college? Interesting question. Dan, I'm a juggler and want to do street advertising for businesses. Is this viable? Yes, it is. And I will we'll kind of unpack some reasons why. Dan, I just lost a job I've hated for three and a half or four and a half years. My problem is I don't seem to be passionate about anything anymore. What should I do? Help. Well, those are some that we'll address. We've got some events coming up here at the Sanctuary in Franklin, Tennessee. For writers and coaches, those are the two primary focuses for events we have the remaining uh, months of this year. I'm speaking here in June, and we've got events, I think, in August and September. So uh, if you want to join us for those, just look at the live events. We'd be happy to meet you in person, help you establish your idea, and look at ways to turn that into extraordinary income, which is a goal that most of you have with your writing or coaching, and rightfully so. Here's a quotation for us today. It comes from Henry David Thoreau. You know, Henry David Thoreau was such a, a thinker, a contemplative guy, and more and more I find myself going back to his material. He's got these short, pithy little quotations, 
just make you think, uh-huh. Here's one you've probably heard before. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. Don't you just love that? You know, being normal in today's world is not necessarily a compliment. The average normal actions of people don't lead to meaningful work relationships or leaving a legacy. So don't be afraid to hear different music and to walk that out in an extraordinary life. Well, Chad says, Chad from California says, I'm a CPA in a profitable niche market. I love the people I work for, but feel there are probably better opportunities out there. I want to kick the tires on a couple of different opportunities, but I'm afraid my current employer will find out and be unhappy with me. What would Dan do? Well, what would Dan do? Dan would immediately start exploring those different opportunities. You know, I mean, employers have to be realistic today in recognizing that people have multiple skills, especially since we're in a work environment where we are, for the most part, knowledge workers as opposed to production workers. If you're a production worker, you may show up at my factory and so you put this nut on this bolt and you do that 3,000 times today. When you go home at night, I keep the materials and the means of production in my facility. You have nothing out there. Well, that's not the way it is today. When you're a knowledge worker, the means of production is between your own two ears. You take that home at night. You take it anywhere you go. It's with you on the weekend. So we're extremely mobile in the skills that we have that we bring to the workplace, you know, that bring value to any organization. So employers have to be realistic about that. They don't own you. They can't control and limit the things that you are able to do productively. So I would encourage you to go ahead and explore those different possibilities. Now, if an employer realizes that you are trying different things, it ought to lead to an open conversation about that. Are you being given enough opportunity where you work currently? Are there opportunities there to be more creative, to do some innovative things? And if not, just simply understand we have 168 hours in any given week. If you give the company 40 hours of quality time and services, that's a reasonable trade-off. For them to try to control or limit what you do with the other 128 hours is ludicrous. It just shouldn't even be framed that way. An employer is a dinosaur. They're way behind the times to think that they can do that. So yeah, I would go ahead and explore your other opportunities. And if those really take off and all of a sudden you see that you can generate the same income and working half the time or whatever, then you've got an easy transition and rightfully so. I mean, we have to understand, you know, working for a company is a a win-win kind of situation and agreement, certainly. But it doesn't mean that you as the employee have an obligation to stay there, you know, five more years just because you've been there for five years where it's been a reasonable trade-off. You provide services, they pay you for that. If you decide to move on, it should be done where everybody does it with a, a glad handshake and a slap on the back to wish him well for the future on both sides of the fence. Dan, I've listened to the podcast. This comes from Al. I've listened to your podcast, read your blogs, and I... I want to say thank you for all you do. I remember you once spoke about getting started once you figured out your passions. You also mentioned how easy it is to register for your own business license, but I was wondering what is the best way to do this? Do I, number one, go down to the county clerk, courthouse of my local county, and simply register for an LLC or DBA employer identification number? Or number two, I've heard it's as easy as going to sites like 
LegalZoom.com and purchasing through there. Once I get this figured out, I can then open a business checking account at my local bank so that I have a place of business or place to accept payments, create PayPal accounts, have the ability to pay for things through the business so you can write them off for tax purposes and so on and so forth. Yeah. Now, you're on the right track, but in terms of the specifics of what you're doing, you go down to the county clerk courthouse of your local county and you get a business license. You do not there register for an LLC or a DBA employer identification number. Those you do through the state. And you can see where it, it, there's always an office, a physical office in your state capital, and you can do that. In Nashville, Tennessee, here I can go down to the Polk Building, go up to the 18th floor, and I can register a charter for a C corporation, an S corp, an LLC, or whatever. Pay a hundred bucks and walk out. Now that's not the way that I do it. I do involve an attorney to set that up properly, and I would encourage you to do the same. You can use sites like LegalZoom.com, but recognize. I mean, I like to have real people involved in things that are as important as that for my business. So I don't try to just skirt corners and just get it done because you can go through LegalZoom and pay 99 bucks, I think it is, to get an LLC set up. Legally, you are set up and ready to go. But the reality of it is you need to understand what that's going to mean in terms of tax obligations that you're going to have. You ought to recognize what is that going to trigger in your state and county in terms of occupational taxes, taxes and fees. So, you know, franchise and excise taxes. I mean, you, you really owe it to yourself to sit down with somebody when you go through the legal structure of creating an LLC or an S-Corp. And I would encourage you to spend two hours with an attorney to get that done. Yeah, it's going to cost you a little bit, but not much. And you're going to learn a whole lot that will get you started on the right track. Huck from Vermont says, Dan, my wife is a talented chef. She was asked to submit a recipe for a local farm-to-table themed cookbook. It's since been published, and it's fun to turn to her pages when we see it at a friend's house or on a bookstore shelf. She gladly submitted a recipe without thought of any compensation, maybe except the publicity of being in a local cookbook. Now, he says that it got him thinking about potential multiple streams of income. He saw a university professor who put together an anthology of stories that became required reading in nearly every 101 course in every college in the country. And then he got rich and retired from teaching. So uh, Huck is saying that he has similar kind of ideas about compiling stories, putting them together. You know, are there ways to do that and get it out there in the real world where people would purchase those uh, he says I've, he's done the disc assessment many times over the years, and I'm highly contemplative. Given your publishing and coaching experience, do you have any advice to me to get going and staying on the right track? Yeah, I would encourage it. Well, one, I mean, it's, uh, obviously, if you came to write to the bank, these are the kind of things that we do cover there. So you go out with a manual and the information to help you walk right through that process right to the bank. Again, you can check that out at one of the live events on our 48days.com or 48days.net and get some details there to see if that will work for you. You can also connect with places like CreateSpace, which is the self-publishing arm of Amazon, or Lightning Source, which is one of those same service providers through Ingram Publishing, Ingram Printing here locally in Nashville, and that's the one that we used for Joanne's recent children's books, Lightning Source. But you got to break what you want to do, break it down into a system. 
Okay, so you'll have a, a schedule of things that have to happen for you to take your ideas and then to put them together in a way that's going to get out there where it's a real product, where people will pay for it, and you'll get income. Now, I think that you've got another kind of implied question, and uh, several other people this week asked the same thing. So I'm going to grab one here, and we'll kind of address that as well. Jake says, Dan, I want to begin to compile and write a book about a certain subject I believe would be very inspirational to the average Christian. I believe this would also be useful as discussion starters for small groups or Bible studies. What I'm envisioning is a sampling of 40 or 50 items on this particular subject, and then we would go through, create a discussion on the inspiration, the theology, how it's impacted others, truth we could extract from the item, probably seven to 10 pages on any given one. Now, here's, here is Jake's question. Do you think the creators of these items would be willing to let me use their creation? How would I go about asking them for an interview, phone, Skype, or email? Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Yeah. Now, Jake, I've got a couple suggestions for you here and real life examples of exactly what you're talking about. One of our 48days.net members, Randy Rudder, came to right to the bank. I think it was last year or so. And he now has put together a book. It's Chicken Soup for the Soul. So it's under their brand, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Country Music. And it's doing extremely well. And I'm thrilled about that for Randy. Randy's a great guy. And what he did was put together 101 stories of music, of songs that we are familiar with. This is not from the performer, but from the person who actually wrote the lyrics. So if it's Carrie Underwood, Jesus Take the Wheel, it's not her perspective of why she chose that song, but it's the writer of the song, why they wrote the song. And usually songs, especially country music, you know, come out of personal experiences. Now, Randy put together those 101. Now, I'd, I haven't asked him specifically, but I can guarantee you 100% that he asked those people to submit their stories. He interviewed them and got those, and those people get no compensation for the stories that they submitted. People do like to submit things. I mean, Joanne, we just got a little devotional book put out by Moody Bible Publishing. And Joanne, my wife, has a story in there, an inspirational devotional on sanctuary. Now, she didn't get paid for that. And it's exactly like what the previous writer was talking about, just the pride of having something that you contributed that's actually in print. I mean, people enjoy doing that. And you can do the same. Now, with with the topic that you're describing, I would also suggest that you pick up a copy of Robert Morgan's wonderful book, Then Sings My Soul. He's got 150 of the world's greatest hymn stories in there. You know, it is well with my soul. I mean, the story of where that came from. The guy actually had... uh, I think a wife and three daughters who were drowned and lost at sea. And then he came back across the Atlantic on a ship. And when they got right to that same point, he penned the words to it is well with my soul, very deeply moving story. So the, the process you're talking about, you know, you can get people to submit stories. You put them together, you get credit as the author and editor if you want to, and you put it together in a book, you get it out there and sell it, you get the royalties, those people just get the pride of having contributed something. Not an uncommon uh, process at all, and you can do that. Um, let me let me go to another one here. Actually, I'm going to, let me pull up a audio message from a lady because it also relates to this and I want to include it right here listen to this yes my name is Beth and I'm in Kentucky Um, my question is if I gather material that I want to present 
in a seminar or a workshop business that I start, then do I have to have permission to present this material from, like, the author of the book? Um, you know, I've picked out um, material for relationships, for finance, for career, such as 48 Days, um, all these different areas of life. And if I start a seminar and workshop business, do I have to have permission to present this material in this manner and to charge, you know, in order to make money um, or charge these people to attend, do I have to have someone's permission? And if so, how do I go about that? All right, Beth, thanks for your question. This is a related question. If you compile material and you put it together in a seminar workshop, do you have to then compensate or get permission from the authors of that material? Well, I've kind of used some terms loosely here that are very, very critical. If you take material out of 48 Days to the Working Office, so you have in there the 10 pages that deal with job search, and you're going to lift those and use those as part of your process. And you're going to take material out of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People from Stephen Covey. And you're going to use eight pages out of that book. And you compile that as one lesson as well. Yes, you must have permission if you're using material in that way. And you would have difficulty getting permission to use that big a section of material like that. Under any circumstances, not just a matter of how those people would be compensated, but publishers are not likely to give you permission to use that much material and use it in that way. However, and here's the however, this is the caveat, because we all do this. I mean, I use tons of material in 48 Days to the Work You Love, both the book and the seminar materials and all that, that came from Brian Tracy or Zig Ziglar or Dennis Waitley or Stephen Covey or whoever. I mean, I use the material, but I reframe it in a way that it becomes my own content. So I don't use word for word right out of the material. And also, you know, I modify it so it becomes my own. Now, you know, there's nothing original under the sun. I mean, the Bible tells us that. Mark Twain has a great quote about that. We all take ideas and just kind of reprocess them so it becomes our own. I mean, that's what authors do. That's what seminar leaders do. You can do that. Now, there are a couple options to this. If you want to take the 48 days to the work you love seminar material and use it exactly as it is, you can do that because we have materials. That's what you do. So you become a facilitator for that. You simply pay a small fee for the materials. You can charge whatever you want for the workshop. So you get the benefit of having the material just as it was laid out, just as it's proven to be effective. And then you can charge an overage on that and you can make a lot of money doing seminars and workshops. So there's that option. But if you want to create your own content, then you really need to make it your own. So you need to redo the material and just use snippets here and there. Nothing in an exact phrase, even if it's a, just a phrase or a sentence that is exactly what I've used or what other authors have used. But you have to rework that so it really becomes your own content. Hope that's helpful. I know, I know it's a little bit of a gray area, but it really is not. Again, I use lots of quotations and lots of content that came originally from other authors, but I either use the quotation exactly as it is and credit that person, or I rework the content, reword it, so that it really becomes part of my own philosophy and teaching. 
Well, here's another book book question kind of, and then we'll move on to some other things. David says, I want to become a reseller of a book. The author is open to this, but neither of us have done this. What steps are needed? What issues do we need to discuss? The book is published in Canada. Does this pose other issues I need to be aware of? Can you recommend sources of information on this subject? Well, this is very common. There's nothing complicated about being a reseller of a book. If it was published by a publishing company, the publisher is likely to be your contact for you to become a reseller of that. Here's why. If you want to become a reseller of a book, it's very common to have a distributorship agreement where you pay 50% of retail. So if the book costs $20 at retail, you can get it directed from the publisher and pay $10, 50% off. It's going to be hard for you to beat that if you deal with the author directly because most authors are not going to be able to buy their own book at less than 50% discount. Now that's sad, but true. No, that's not true with me. I buy my books way under 50% discount. Most of them are like 90% discount from retail, but that's another issue. But even there, even if I'm able to buy my book at, at 80 or 90% off, I am prevented in the terms of my contract from selling that to somebody who's going to buy their big quantities from me and then they're going to go sell them in a bookstore or at street fairs or whatever. I'm prevented from doing that because my publisher wants to be the source for retail supplies. Now, we we sell to individuals and do that a lot. We sell to churches and schools, and that's okay. But your best contact is going to be to go right to the publisher. Now, the fact that that's published in Canada, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's published in the United States, Canada, England, or China. It doesn't make any difference at all. And, and really other issues, it's, it's just not that complicated. If you have a method for selling that, you become a distributor, you buy them at a deep discount, you go ahead and sell them any way that you want to. I've done that a lot with books over the years where I have become a distributor with publishers so we can resell books that I think are nice additions to the content that we have. Now here's an interesting one. And you'll recognize why if you've listened to me at all. Malcolm says, good afternoon. I'm in a secure government position, but desire entrepreneurship. Now, Malcolm did put secure in quotation marks and rightfully so, because I don't believe there is such a thing as in a secure position. I mean, obviously, it doesn't matter if you're president of the United States. That's not a secure position. That's something that a whole lot of people have to say, yeah, you're the guy we want there or the gal, I guess, as the case is coming up, or else you're not going to be in that position. And that's certainly true in any other position you can identify. I don't care if it's CEO, if it's CEO of your own company and you have a board of directors, you could be replaced tomorrow. I've seen a lot of people who have done exactly that, where they're CEO of a company and they raised venture capital for their business. And 18 months into it, the board who usually consist of the people who put up the money decides we want somebody new to run this company and a CEO is out happens every day of the year. So that being the case, Malcolm says I'm in a secure government position, but desire entrepreneurship. How does one who was not raised in a family that encouraged entrepreneurship, but in a family that stressed the traditional work model, get over the fear of not receiving a regular paycheck in return for the potential for unlimited income? Thanks for all your wise advice. Wow, great question, Malcolm. I love how your thinking is going here. So let me give you a couple tips. 
If you're in a secure position and used to getting a paycheck and a 401k contribution and so on and so forth, start creating any kind of income on your own. Now, just recognize that you're going to be paid for results rather than time. That's usually the big quantum leap for people coming out of a traditional job. They're used to being paid, or at least they think they're being paid for time. Now, ultimately, that's a very poor business model. Businesses can't pay for time. They can only pay for results. But with paycheck systems, it usually gives the impression I'm being paid so much an hour or so much a month or so much a year or whatever. But as soon as you make the switch to recognize you're being paid for results, rather than time, it opens the door to all kinds of new possibilities. So that's a healthy perspective for anyone to move in that direction. The other component of this is you came from a family that stressed the traditional work model, receiving a regular paycheck and benefits and so on. Recognize that when you move into something that is looks like entrepreneurship, something non-traditional, more creative, you may get income that is not regular. It's irregular income. Uh, Dave Ramsey talks about that a lot and how to budget with irregular income and so on. But here's how you have to look at. As soon as you move into something creative, you have to start looking at your income annually rather than per week. Because if you're used to being paid, let's say you're used to being paid $1,000 a week. So you're used to making $4,000 a month. Let's say that you go three weeks and you make zero. You're in your own business. You make zero. Now, are you going to be terrified? Well, maybe. But if you know you're working on closing a deal and you close that deal on the 30th day of the month and you make $10,000, are you better off than you were making $1,000 a week as an employee? Well, certainly. So you have to get over the idea of looking at regular income and just look at the end of the month. I mean, the end of the year, really. When, when I started selling cars, this was years and years ago. And I was, of course, a, a young buck. I was like 26, 27 years old and started selling cars. And it was a great experience for me. And I had a wonderful old guy named Cecil Barrow who worked for me on the car lot. He had a, a lot of wisdom about not only the car business, but business in general, now that I'm old enough to appreciate all the wisdom that he passed on to me. But I used to go for like three days. If I didn't sell a car, I'd get panicked. I'd start getting, you know, nausea, stomach ulcers, whatever. If I'd go for three days and and not sell anything. And he always told me, he says, Dan, you never look at the car business by the day or the week or even the month. But he assured me very early. He says, if you keep doing things as you are, treating people as you are, at the end of the year, you're going to be amazed when you look back on it. Well, that was exactly true. At the end of the first year in the car business, I made over three times as much money as I had ever made in a year in my life. And it didn't come in nice 52 equal installments. It came in chunks. You know, I'd sell a motorhome and make $4,000. I'd sell a car and make a thousand. Then I'd sell a car and, you know, lose $300. But it still, at the end of the year, was an amazing experience. So do that. Start creating any kind of income on your own. And when you start seeing some trends there, when you see that in 30 days you're generating this much income, then it gives you more comfort from walking away from that traditional secure job that you have now. Jamie says, hi, Dan, do you have any knowledge or opinions on Bitcoin? 
I've heard some talk online about it recently. Is it a legitimate way to make money by trading it online? Now, if you aren't familiar with it, Bitcoin is just a term for, it's a kind of new digital currency. Been around a couple years. And it's money, it's currency, but it's not real in terms of tangible coins and so on. It's an online currency. Uh, Currently, there are no major retailers that accept that currency for payment. So it's kind of a under the radar. You have to be in that group in order to use it for currency. It's, It's like a sophisticated bartering system where I may say, if, uh, you do, you know, three massages for me, I'll help you with a business plan. So it's formalizing that kind of exchange, but it's called Bitcoin. Can you make money doing that? This is one of those things that's very, very speculative. I mean, it's not commonly accepted anywhere. And while I'm very open to thinking outside the box, this is too new and unproven. And I would consider this very risky. You're really putting yourself out there in ways where you have little control. And in my framework, my way of thinking, that's what constitutes risk. I would not encourage you to get involved in Bitcoin. Jeremy says, after working as an in-house agency for the last two companies I've worked at, I've started my own advertising and marketing business. I'm finding opportunities with companies looking to hire employees. At what point do you think it would be prudent to let them know I don't want to be an employee, but an independent contractor for them? I think you ought to do that right at the front end. I think you ought to be doing that in your marketing material so that doesn't come across as you are someone looking for a traditional 40-hour-a-week position. So it ought to be stated right up front that you are open to consulting kind of agreements or working as an independent contractor, which opens the door exponentially to possibilities of you being connected with companies. There are going to be, you know, 98% of the companies out there that could not justify having you full time, but maybe candidates for using you one day a week or one day a month. So yeah, let them know right off the bat that you, what you're looking for is not a traditional employee arrangement, but rather to provide your expertise in a very limited fashion that meets the needs of that organization. That's a great perspective. And yeah, don't, don't hesitate on that. It's going to increase dramatically, not decrease your opportunities for putting legs on that. Vicki says, Vicki from Lexington, Kentucky, I'm considering a couple of different home party plans like Avon and T-Lightful Treasures as a way to earn some income part-time, also just to learn basic sales skills. What do I need to know to determine if these are the right companies for me? And what specific skills do I need to focus on? Well, Vicki, you're looking at this in a real healthy way because your personal skills are much more important than the company or product. What we want to look at is, is this a right fit for you? So it's not a matter of, is Avon a great company with great products, been around a long time, blah, 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 that's fine. But does the process of putting together, you know, little home parties like for delightful treasures or decorator dinner, what's the, um, golly, what's the, oh, Pampered Chef, that's the real popular, you know, one, we've got a Pampered Chef lady in our community who is amazing 
and put in on those parties. I mean, Joanne, my wife, loves to have parties with Nancy doing them, not because she needs anything, but Nancy's so great at putting on a party. I mean, it's a party that should not be missed, even if you don't need anything for your kitchen. Well, that's the kind of person that you want to be, the kind of person that puts on parties or is so great at recruiting others. You know, you're a cheerleader. You're the person who breaks the silence in the elevator. You know, you're that kind of person. Those kind of people do well with this kind of home party plan sales business plan. If you are that kind of person, you're real gregarious, outgoing, social, then chances are you'd be a good fit for this kind of business. If you are not, if you're introverted and shy and very uncomfortable being around people, then certainly this is not going to be a good fit. So those are the things you need to focus on. The sales skills you can learn, but you need to have the right personality traits initially. Then you can learn sales techniques. You can learn, get books like Ziegler's Secrets of Closing the Sale, Brian Tracy's The Psychology of Selling. I mean, those are great things. Tom Hopkins has a lot of material on selling that has helped multi-level marketing and home party plan people over the years. But you you can learn that. How do you take somebody's initial interest and turn that into, you know, are you going to be paying by check or credit card? You go for the assumptive close. I mean, how can you do that? And you can learn those if you have the right personality traits that make you a good candidate for that kind of business. Good question. Justin from Des Moines says, Dan, I have a dream to own my own business. I've tried multiple things, a couple multi-level marketing things, selling t-shirts. My biggest passion is MMA. And, um, Well, MMA is mixed martial arts. I don't want to fight, but I want to own a business dealing with it somehow. Any suggestions? I'm not a good salesperson. Ideas to improve. I struggle talking to random people. Thanks. Well, that's a good example of what I just mentioned in the previous question. Is this a good fit for you? So if your passion is mixed martial arts, the most obvious application is to rent a little warehouse and turn that into a, an MMA training center. That would not be a good fit for you. When you say that I'm not a good salesperson, I struggle talking to random people, by all means, do not open a physical facility. Do not do the most obvious application for MMA. That being said, there are tons of things you can do you can become an information resource. I mean, you can have a website with books there, manifestos, blogs, training tips, gear, announcement of upcoming events. I mean, you can have a real active participation in the community of MMA where you do not have to have traditional sales skills. You do not have to meet random people and talk to them and get them excited and be the cheerleader on the side when you've got a live event going on in your facility. Don't do that. But you can I mean, do all the things that I talk about here where you leverage intellectual expertise. So if you have intellectual expertise in the area of MMA, then look at 20 different ways you could put legs on that without having to be a face-to-face, nose-to-nose, belly-to-belly salesperson. I mean, look at the things that I do in 48 days. Go to my website and ask yourself if you could do the same thing with MMA as the focus rather than career selection as a focus. I mean, look at the things that I do. I mean, we have real active, you know, blogs. We have people sharing information in forums. We have announcement of upcoming events. We have books, resources, audios available. 
There is nothing there that requires me to pick up the phone and call somebody, ask them if they want to buy what we have. I mean, I don't, it just, there's nothing there. It's all shaped on systems being in place, but those systems and operations and methods being in place then allow ongoing, very profitable business where it doesn't require me to you know, go out here and meet people and try to talk them into coming to my facility or going to chamber of commerce meetings and speaking there or going to BFI and uh, giving a little sales presentation on what I do. I don't have to do any of those things. And, and frankly, I mean, I'm, I'm not a real outgoing social gregarious kind of person either. And I've structured my business to reflect that and just put it together in ways that fit me personally. You can do the same in MMA, but the last thing you want to do is think that you're going to open up some little training facility. Chris says, Dan, I'm a juggler. I'd like to do street advertising for businesses. I'll juggle outside their storefront or at the nearest intersection wearing their t-shirt and standing by their sign. Attracting more attention than an average sign holder, I would advertise more effectively and would turn a $7 an hour job into a $30 an hour job. Is this viable? Absolutely, Chris. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, being a juggler describes a very clear USP. You hear me talk about that a lot. You need to know what is my unique selling proposition, my USP. There are a whole lot of people holding signs. You know, the the range of people who are sign people out here, it blows my mind. I mean, we, we know the people who are the spinners. I mean, they do things that are real creative. You can't keep from having your attention and eyesight go over to those people. So you see that they're selling mattresses today or they're doing tax preparation or whatever because the sign spinner is so stinking creative in what they're doing. And then you see guys, and there's a lot of guys around here in Franklin, Tennessee. I mean, here we have a lot of things that are very restrictive in terms of putting signs out. So on a Saturday, you go around and you'll see people at every street corner. They're sitting there holding the sign, you know, on sale today mattresses or big closing sale at Borders Books because they're going out of business. And you'll see somebody sitting there. I mean, just sitting there holding the sign because that technically bypasses the sign restrictions where you can't just stick a sign in the ground. No, this is a person holding a sign. But I see these poor people who are just sitting there hour after hour after hour, technically complying with the law. And trust me, they're making $7 an hour. So you add something creative to that, like juggling, yeah, it's going to make you much more difficult to replace, make you stand out, make you get attention, and you very reasonably can charge $30, $40, $50 an hour to do that. So put together the options as to how you would do that and then present that to companies. I think it's a great USP and a great way for you to move ahead. Sounds good. Thanks for the question, Chris. Sonia says, I know that I want to be a toy and game designer and party planner, and I don't need college credentials to do it. I also know the skills that I will need to learn to be successful. What do you think about me making my own learning curriculum versus going to college? You know, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I think I think this is going to be a new trend, Sonia. We're going to see this not only with you, but hundreds of thousands of other people. People are realizing they come through college. Yes, they have a piece of paper to hang on the wall, but they don't have any real marketable skills. Oh, and incidentally, they owe $80,000 in student loan debt. I mean, what a stinking place to be. 
with all those things in place. You would be much better off to decide what it is you want to do, determine what you need to develop the skills to make yourself a player in that arena. Just go do that. If that's a six-week course that you take or three books that you read or apprenticing with somebody who's already doing it, there are a whole lot of ways to get real valuable marketable skills. And again, I'm not just negating the value of a college degree. There are a lot of things that take place in college. But if I remember correctly, I think you've posed this question on 48days.net and you are not an 18 year old, you're a, a single mom. And so this is a much different question. So for you to decide, you know, so my, my framing it that way, it clarifies that you don't need to, you know, look forward to sorority parties and go into the ball games on the weekends. You're at a different place. You want the learning. And so we've just taken out a big part of the value of the college experience where you do get involved in fraternities, sororities, clubs, and go to ball games and all of that. But at your season in life, you want the learning. And there are probably ways you can get that, especially in the areas that you identify much quicker than sitting in a classroom of 18 year olds for four years and, having a big opportunity cost in terms of time and money. So sure, you can create your own learning curriculum so you can be a toy and game designer and party planner. When you do those things, people don't ask you, gee, what is your degree? How much time and money did you spend getting your credentials in place? No, those are things that are, you prove your worth by the success and value of things that you produce. So I think it's a great idea. You might pick up also Stephen Key's new book, one simple idea. He talks about how he has taken ideas. Now, a, a listener recommended that, and I don't remember who it was, but thank you. Because it was a great recommendation because I got the book and it really changed my thinking on the value of just presenting good ideas, even to established companies. I've said for years that companies are not looking for outside ideas. It's too much hassle, too many legalities involved. They don't want to hear a great idea, even if it would be a good fit for them. Stephen is saying that companies are realizing they can't capture all the great ideas for their business by just the few employees that they have, especially as companies are streamlining by downsizing, getting rid of employees, and that they're more open to ever to what, what's called open innovation, meaning they may accept an idea from somebody on the outside. So if you've got a good idea for a toy or game, you could formulate that so at least it's clearly identified, present it to a company where they take it, license it, you get royalties on an ongoing basis. And Stephen Key has been part of big home runs like uh, Teddy Ruxpin and some other things that where he's been a part. So he's a good, credible source on that. But again, the book is one simple idea. But yeah, I think it's a great idea to develop your own learning curriculum. Go do it. Knock it out of the park. Here's a question. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast uh, to the point where I have an idea how Dan would respond to questions asked why I understand things need to be general. I have never heard Dan address how highly educated people in very technical fields like chemists and scientists using specialized equipment can succeed working outside of corporate America. Well, let me give you a handful of ways that can be done. And we, we tend to think about those things. If you are a chemist or scientist, yes, you are working for Procter & Gamble. You get a paycheck at the end of the week. Well, no, those people have, again, intellectual expertise that can be applied and given legs in a whole lot of different ways. You can be a consultant, a trainer, you can be a writer, you can be a seminar workshop leader, you can do a blog or podcast. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you could 
keep doing the thing that you are very good at, the expertise that you have. I mean, just recently I had a guy who, um, Mark Jones, who is one of the 48days.net members, went on a cruise with us last year, Mark and his wife. Um, he is just leaving the Air Force. Well, he's a test pilot with the Air Force. Very specialized training, and you would think, well, that is something that you can get paid for by working for Boeing or the Air Force. No, he has all kinds of opportunities to be a consultant in that arena. I mean, when you think about the number of new companies that are using plane technology, airplane, air aviation technology, it's really limitless. And Mark has all kinds of opportunities as a highly compensated consultant in those other companies because of his expertise that was gained in the Air Force as a test pilot. You can do that same with any kind of expertise, specialized expertise that you may have. Here's one. And you know what? I think I'm going to probably make this my last. Shane says, I graduated with a bachelor's degree 10 years ago, but have found only low wage jobs ever since. By following your method to find a good paying job, can I expect the same results as far as interviews and job offers that you claim in 48 days to the work you love, even though I'm an introvert and don't have any achievements to brag about? All right, let me just cut to the chase here, Shane. We've got about three minutes to deal with this. Can you, even though you're an introvert, and don't have any achievements to brag about, get the multiple job offers that I talk about in 48 Days to the Work You Love. If I make the extension a little bit more by saying that because you're an introvert, you, know, you don't come across with good energy, you don't have a strong handshake, you don't look people in the eye, you don't get excited and enthusiastic, you, know, you don't have any achievements to brag about so there's really nothing of unique value that you bring to the table now obviously i've really gone over the line of what you stated here but if those things are true can you get the multiple interviews absolutely not it won't happen however you can learn the things to make you successful in the job search and you can learn those very quickly. You don't have to go back and get another degree. Having a BS is absolutely adequate. And the fact that you've only found low-wage jobs since then has nothing to do with the training or the degrees that you have. It has to do with how you present yourself and how you're doing the job search. Now, in, in No More Mondays, I talk about the five predictors of success as being passion, determination, talent, self-discipline, and faith. Those are the things that we see make people extremely successful. It's not their degree, it's not their intelligence, and it's not even their personality style, but passion, determination, talent, self-discipline, and faith, those will make you successful. And if you don't have one of those, you can learn how to have one of those. Now, you will need to be very clear in answering interview questions. So when somebody says, what are three of your strengths? You need to be very crystal clear. Boom, boom, boom. This is what I do. Well, um, what skills do you possess that have prepared you for this job? What are your short and long range goals? You need to be able to speak very clearly to those things. And if you can, it'll open up a lot of opportunities for you. Now, in 48 Days to the Work You Love, in the paperback version, it's on page 132. I list the five fatal flaws in interviewing. Those being, number one, lack of enthusiasm. Now, again, I talk about it in there. You know, you don't have to be a David Letterman or a Conan O'Brien, but you've got to be able to express enthusiasm 
for a job. Enthusiasm, boldness, confidence will do more for you in an interview than your college degree or getting another college degree. So five fatal flaws in interviewing, lack of enthusiasm. Number two, what's in it for me? Too quickly going to, gee, what are the benefits? How many vacation days do I get? Uh, That'll show you as a very weak candidate. Number three, unclear job goals. Don't be a generalist. Be very clear about specifically what you're seeking. Number four, poor personal appearance. And this is a biggie. If you tend to be an introvert and kind of shy anyway, dress overdress for the occasion, the interview. Dress really, really sharp. I mean, so you look successful. Even if you don't feel that way, look successful. And then number five is not selling yourself. You've got to sell yourself. The reason you're in entry-level jobs, minimum wage jobs, you've never sold yourself into a job where the compensation would be more than that. You can learn how to do that. And things like uh, on page 137, I've got in 48 days, I've got things like smile, be pleasant and outgoing, show self-confidence, I mean, fidgeting, nervousness, glancing down, not accepting compliments, self-deprecating statements all convey poor self-confidence. So these are things you can learn. You can learn how to do those things very quickly. I mean, in the course of three days, you can go through some of the principles I've got in 48 days and learn the things that will present you with enthusiasm, confidence, and boldness. And that will open up doors of opportunity to you that maybe you haven't experienced at this point. Well, there we go. We're taking care of business. Hey, I appreciate the questions that you all submit. We got more here, but... Keep them coming. I love sorting through the questions that you uh, send in each week so that we can go through. It helps me. It helps me as a coach going through these. Helps me going through these to formulate answers to help all of you out there and all of us together who are finding or creating work that is purposeful, meaningful, and profitable. Don't have to sacrifice on that end. I know you're doing that. Have a great week.